Welcome to the Back in Business podcast. I'm business journalist, broadcaster and podcaster, Mickey Clark. And I'm small business journalist, Liz Barkley. And we will be joined shortly by Professor Shinetra Gupta, who will be able to give us some insight into how effective lockdowns, tears, restrictions of all sorts across the UK are in terms of helping us to get through this pandemic. But... Um, the jobs news isn't good this week, Mickey. Um, and the figure that upset me most was the one from the Office for National Statistics that showed about 277,000 self-employed people have stopped working for themselves and are looking for employment. And a million more are likely to follow suit. I think that's really, really sad. And we're going to lose all those skills from the economy. Well, I'm not sure the government feels the same way. I don't think they're terribly sympathetic towards the self-employed and freelancers Anyway, they'd sooner see them on a payroll and working for a big conglomerate. But yeah, it is sad. And the problem is you've gone into the lockdown back in March. You've come out, you've gone in, shake it all around. And, and really, a lot of these people just haven't got any businesses left. How can you plan a business? You know, we used to talk about five-year business plans. It's five-week business plans now. It's, it's ridiculous. They're not getting the backing from the, from the banks. No one seems to know what support's available and what's not. The message coming out from the scientists and the government, not garbled, but it's certainly confusing. Um, you can understand that many of them have decided to chuck in the towel. The trouble is a lot of them aren't going to get jobs working for companies. You know, this, this, it seems to be this idea that you can go and get retrained and do something else. Well, yes, yeah, some of them can, but not everybody. And, and that is a real problem. And I think that's something that the government obviously needs to address. Where are the skills going to come from, from the, for the new jobs that become available? But to go back to the point about freelancers, and you and I have been freelance for a long, long time, uh, much longer than we care to mention on a public arena <laughs> platform. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's not just that I like being my own boss. It's not just that I like the flexibility that it gives me. I take all the risk. I haven't been on holiday for heaven only knows how long because I can't afford to both turn down work and pay for the holiday. If I'm sick, I have to carry all the risk. I still love that way of working, though. But I have skills that are really valuable to other businesses and to bigger businesses. And if if and I'm not just talking about me, but if we if a million and a half of us are no longer around, those skills are not going to be available to firms that are going to create jobs. Uh, and need skills on a temporary basis. I, I agree. I know where you're coming from, but it's a buyer's market. And at the moment, um, the government doesn't feel that we should have any preferential treatment when it comes to taking risks uh, and making plans. They, they just feel, feel that we should be making a bigger contribution towards tax and national insurance, especially when you consider how much money they've spent on you know, fighting the COVID-19 epidemic. Um, you, this week, they're talking about raising taxes doubling CGT, capital gains tax, going after the freelancers. We, we've heard it all before. They're going to have to raise money at some point. And, and the deficit, you know, the difference between money coming in, taxation coming in into the Treasury's coffers and money being spent by the government is going to be £400 billion this year alone. That's a colossal sum. They've got to find it somewhere. They're going to pick the easy targets. I dare say it, the tax man always does. 
shall we talk to shall we attempt to have a podcast on this because i do think this is a really important issue uh, uh, but it's partly a cultural thing too as to how as you say the government sees uh, freelance and small business workers um but i think there's a lot to catch up on so let's talk to uh, simon and declan simon mcvicker director of public affairs policy and communications and our business editor declan curry um where do we start, Simon? What's going on and what's going on in Downing Street? <laughs> yes, well, I mean, this is a, an ongoing story, but uh, as we heard overnight, Dominic Cummings is out. Uh, he apparently resigned before he was pushed. Um, now, I have been saying for some time that um, we could see a sequence of events where the parliamentary party would move against Cummings first and get rid of him and then uh, give Boris probably one more chance. And if he doesn't shape up, he'll be out. And I think that's what we're seeing. I mean, in the last couple of days, uh, the backbencher set up something called the COVID Recovery Group, which uh, had 70 MPs signed up publicly to it within a couple of days. There's another, I believe, 40 privately backing it. So if you take the hundred odd government ministers out of it, that's a huge section of the Tory backbenchers. And um, there is this disconnect at the moment between Downing Street and the backbenchers. And they felt that uh, they were not being consulted. They are, uh, the second lockdown uh, was pushed through without uh, their consent. And um, with Labour votes, by the way, with Labour votes, and they ain't having it. They're not going to have this going forward, and they're certainly not going to do it on flimsy evidence that they think was put to them. They want a full um, uh, sort of a, a full response that is uh, economically rigorous as well as uh, showing the health concerns. And I heard Sir Bernard Jenkins, a senior uh, Brexiteer MP, but on the 1922 committee saying, we are looking for respect, integrity, and trust from number 10. Those are very, very strong words. So Maybe. the MPs were frightened to take on, take on Dominic Cummings, but Boris's girlfriend wasn't. Well, I would say they have taken on Does Dominic it say, Cummings. I mean, I'm not I, political, but this seems a little bit strange to me. I don't Who's think... Who's running this country? I think Carrie Simmons has reacted to the Tory backbench just because she used to be central offices liaison with the backbenchers. But you also have this new powerful figure of Allegra Stratton, who some of you probably know. And uh, she seems to have asserted her weight pretty quickly within the new setup. She a did month. get on with uh, uh, Mr. King. She hasn't even got her feet under the table. Well, but you can't say what she's doing is not bad. If she's got rid of Cummings with her team... <laughs> That's not a bad start, is it? I, th I just find the whole thing absolutely fascinating. And Mickey, something you may have missed on our WhatsApp group chat. Our producer, Harry, now th get this one. He has suggested that Dominic Cummings should retrain as a castle tour guide. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what do you think ah. of that? <laughs> one castle is brilliant. brilliant. <laughs> be, the, the, the customers would be too frightened, wouldn't they? But you know what? What I I really do think that uh, you know, despite what's going on, Boris is at the centre of all of this. He hasn't really got a clue what to do. 
He's created a vacuum in his own government. And, you know, without Cummings, what is his strategy? What does he believe? We're hearing this, these words of a greener, you know, more global Britain, you know, and all these sort of vacuous words. But the backbenchers will want a proper plan. And at the moment, there isn't one there. And I don't know, but I just don't think he's going to last very long. Well, uh, for the viewers, for the listeners who can't see us on Zoom, I have to say Simon McVicker's face is one of the most uh, mobile ones I've ever (laughs) come across. And some of your expressions there, uh, Simon, gave away your feelings about where you think Boris should should go next, and it's not necessarily (laughs) into the next election. Uh, Declan, (laughs) we just mentioned there uh, some of the dire figures that have come out this week. You know, they, the people leaving self-employment, etc. But there are other dire figures around about the economic growth as well. There are. As you know, Liz, I'm, I'm not one to hand out praise unnecessarily. I don't like to wear out the word adequate. But Simon has been absolutely spot on on this week in, week out on this podcast. Simon, you called this weeks and weeks ago, and it is playing out exactly as you said it would. It just... What, well, we happens have... the pup- what happens to the puppet when the puppet master leaves? We have to have people on board who've got their finger on the pulse, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is all too clever for me. What I would say is, what is very interesting is the position of Rishi Sunak and all of this, mm. because uh, a lot of people think that he is on the side of this COVID recovery group. And to be honest with you, he hasn't really come up with any other plans going forward uh, after the second lockdown was announced. In fact, he hasn't even done an economic uh, impact assessment. Oh, Simon, I, t- I think you're being a bit unfair. I mean, Rishi Sunak used to be undecided. Now he's not so sure. What, what's the problem? <laughs> <laughs> or, 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 Mickey, he's playing a very clever game. Of course, next week he's got his uh, comprehensive spending review for one. He's year. so clever. He's bloody lost me uh, weeks ago. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, you know, he has, he's going to have to say something, uh, but what that will be, I do not know. But, I mean, he is, he is playing a game because he knows he is the man to step into Boris's shoes when it all... Last goes. man standing, you mean. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Declan, and, we knew, and, we, and we know that if he has to retrain, he'll cut a dash and wagamamas holding those Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Liz, that's, I th- that's two I, I, that's reskilled already. <laughs> exactly. Liz, I, I, I think, Declan, um, take the ball yeah. back. <laughs> I, I, I think this is actually the week where we saw the bright light of optimism at the end of a fairly, fairly long tunnel. And that is uh, the news of the breakthrough of the Pfizer vaccine, because that has now changed all the discussions about what the economy and what business might be looking forward to next year. The numbers this year are still pretty stark. This week we heard that we had a huge boom in the economy in July, August and September, a 15.5% recovery. In normal times, that would have us booking brass bands from Barnard Castle. It's down cobblers, to Declan, land, you know that. But you know, Mickey, that that's bouncing back from an even bigger slump. From so nothing, the economy yeah. is still smaller. The, the figures uh, are meaningless. Well, they're only meaningless insofar as one we wanted one to outbalance the other and it hasn't happened uh, just yet. And the Bank of England and others are still saying it's going to be next year before we see the, the economy get back. At. 8% shortfall on pre-COVID levels. That's, that's yeah. the nearest thing to a guide. Don't talk about GDP bouncing back. What a lot of rubbish. 
That, and you're this missing, lockdown, you're missing that, the situation yeah, worse. I know. You're, yes, you're missing my point. It bounced back, but even with that huge amount of growth, it's still dwarfed by the slump yeah, that we had yeah, before. Yeah, so it's yeah. when do we get back to where we were? We were? And that's going to be sometime next year, perhaps towards the middle or the end of next year. The when other Simon one calls watch, the next general election, obviously. When Simon, <laughs> will be prime, when Simon will be prime minister at this rate. I the, don't uh, believe the, in this V-shaped uh, recovery. It's well, not Bank of happen. England still does. I can't. Yeah, tell they're right about everything. At the minute now. It's, it, it certainly isn't. It, <laughs> keep going, Declan. Keep going. <laughs> it, it certainly isn't a letter that they taught in Sesame Street uh, no. many, many years ago. <laughs> the, the other number to watch is the unemployment number. We saw a record number of people made redundant in July, August, and September. Uh, what we don't know is what the impact, the extension of furlough will have because the bank of england and all the others said unemployment could reach 10 percent, could be three maybe four million unemployed well that was before furlough was extended through to next march so that might keep the jobless numbers down we might pay it, for it we, or might I, it kick the can down the road I, uh, yeah and yet yeah. again like but 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 to a point where the economy might be stronger yes. so the loss he of should have kept it going strong. from day one and well, said, that's we will a whole different discussion. And extend it. Everyone yeah. would have knew where they stood. Businesses would have known where they stood. There was clarity there. Instead of that, he faffed around, came up with different schemes, yeah. which no one yeah. understood. One they realised wasn't even economically worthwhile uh, and has been quietly dumped. Well, hang on, Mickey. You've, ju you've just lambasted him for the amount of money he's borrowing. If he'd said from day one, we're going to roll out this scheme. Not lambasting him for it. I'm saying they're talking about where they're going to claw it back from next year. Let's yeah. get up off the canvas before we start worrying well, about buying and I, and I, Can I just come in and support a Mickey there? That is the next big argument within the Conservative Party because actually most Conservative MPs agree with what Mickey's saying. They don't want tax rises because they think it will stagnate the economy even more. So, uh, so all these kites that have been flown about, all these different tax rises, uh, it, they're leading to a huge rise. Can I ask uh, on the uh, Declan on the comprehensive spending review? Um, Simon mentioned it. Um, it's in the next ten days or so, um, and we'll talk more about that next week. Anything we should be calling for? We might see the return of Rishi's meal deal, some form of eat out to help out <laughs> scheme to boost the hospitality trade what? in the run up to Christmas ahead oh, of everything. the New Year lockdown. <laughs> that one again. Well, uh, you know, Declan, there's the, a lot of evidence broader... to say that that was partly the reason the economy slowed down dramatically in September. Yes, because the the takeaway yeah. uh, yeah. stimulus was yeah. withdrawn at the it just moved end the of weekend August. to Monday. Mm. The uh, and 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 call every day a Saturday. The the big picture behind this is that you've got the head of the Federal Reserve in the United States, you've got the head of the European Central Bank in Frankfurt, you've got the head of the Bank of England in London, all this week saying. Even though the vaccine is going to be great, it's going to be months before it makes a difference. Mm. And in the meantime, governments have to keep the spending taps flowing. They have to keep the cheap credit going to stop the economy getting worse than it otherwise would be. Um, and I think we'll be talking much more about the comprehensive spending review next week, as I said. But it's only for a year, isn't it? Mm. Nobody can yes. make a plan beyond a year no. at the moment. No, no, nobody no. knows. Nobody knows what they're doing next month. And yeah. don't forget, if, we still got the end of the transition period yeah. at the end of the year. Brexit is coming yeah. back to bite us. Yeah. Ah, okay. <laughs> now, Wales came out of its firebreak on Monday the 9th. England is ten days into lockdown. 
Scotland is in five tiers. Uh, restrictions in Northern Ireland will be extended for a week with partial reopening for some sectors on Friday the 20th. But what do we know about how well these restrictions work? And if cases of COVID are coming down around the UK, what is causing them to decrease? Is it the lockdown? Is it the tears, the fire breaks? Or is it distancing, hand washing and masks? Professor Shinetra Gupta may well be able to give us some insight into that. She's an infectious disease epidemiologist and a professor of theoretical epidemiology at the Department of Zoology, University of Oxford. Professor, thank you so much for giving us your time. Now, Pleasure. I know that you have talked about something called focused protection. And uh, let's face it, your views seem to have generated some criticisms in some quarters from other scientists. But we're not here to criticise your views in any shape or form. We're here to hear what you have to say around about the restrictions that have been imposed on business and the self-employed, who, of course, are very anxious to get back to work. So what can you set out your thinking for us? What is your idea around about focused protection? So you just mentioned that, you know, things have changed, infections are going down, and then yesterday there was this uh, apparent spike. Um, all of these, first of all, are kind of uncurated numbers that have been thrown to the public to digest, which I think is a little bit unfortunate because, you know, there's always noise and variation. And so I, my, my first thing that I'll say um, is just, just to be wary um, as the general public of these numbers that are just being spat out um, in your direction. But what you said, what you mentioned was, uh, you, you said, well, what is actually causing, what causes these numbers to rise or fall in the first place? Um, which, of, which lockdown measures are responsible for these? Are they the sort of simple, uh, you know, keep social distancing, mask wearing things about, of, I should mention that for most of these things, there are no independent studies that tell us how well they work. So we don't know. And what we do know, I think, is that when you completely lock down a place, that it, that you do get a drop in infections, you do halt the, the natural spread of infection, and you also halt its dissemination to other parts of the country. So what we're arguing about is, if you like, um, or what, that conversation is about what are the, what's the relationship between levels of lockdown restrictions and COVID related um, infections and deaths. And what I'm first going to say is we don't know what the shape of that curve is. And you can argue till you're blue in the face, but there's very little evidence for anything other than, you know, some extreme consequence such as you know proper complete quarantine will stop infection so we know that we know what happens at the extremes and if you do nothing then of course it will just spread naturally so those two extremes we know about but everything in between we don't what do we know we know that lockdowns cause enormous harm with serious long-term effects and in this regard we ought to think about who, when we use the word vulnerable we, we, what we've been doing over the last nine, 10, well, since the beginning of the year, is only to think of those who are vulnerable to the virus. Um, whereas for me anyway, right at the outset, 
it seemed to me that we were ignoring those who were economically vulnerable. And I guess it particularly in, uh, you know, with this po podcast, I did think very much of the self-employed and those who are running on small margins who are, of course, I mean, which is, of course, a condition of any creative enterprise is that it typically does run on small margins. So those enterprises are severely imperiled by lockdown, of course. Um, and it's misleading to characterize the effects of lockdown as simply economic anyway, because there is huge impact on mortality, health, well-being. And if you look in this country alone, but if you look globally, more internationally, um, you know, this could lead to and has already led to a major humanitarian crisis. So what we know is that lockdowns have such a huge cost that the idea of using them in any way at all to mitigate uh, COVID deaths is problematic. So then what, what, what should we do? What can we do about this? Furthermore, lockdowns, even when they're highly successful, only delay the spread, the inevitable spread of a virus. So we're facing, lockdowns themselves are, have enormous costs on, and are not long-term sustainable solutions to the question even of how to keep COVID deaths down. So the solution that we um, and others have recommended is not to kind of let it rip, in other words, to not have a lockdown and just let it uh, let the virus do its natural thing, but to focus all these efforts that we're putting into uh, these mitigation pre uh, efforts and these restrictions, these nationwide um, blanket restrictions, if we could use those to, um, we could focus those efforts on protecting those who are vulnerable, and we know who those are, which, you know, one of the great, um, you know, one of the fortunate aspects of this virus is, um, characteristics of this virus is that it only does cause deaths in particular people with particular vulnerabilities, and we largely are able to characterize that. So if we could protect those people and permit the rest of the population to function normally and build up natural immunity, um, then this would be the better solution, not just for every, I mean, it would be a better solution if you're trying to optimize the level of deaths and harm overall in the society. And it might even be the better way to protect people from dying from COVID. Because when you have lockdowns, what you do, what you're doing is instead of letting it rip, you're letting it drip. And that there are studies that show that that could in fact lead to higher COVID deaths. But the more important fact is that it leads to a lot of um, non-COVID deaths. So what we're proposing is a middle ground between let it rip and let it drip, uh, which again, as I said, materially involves protecting the vulnerable and allowing the rest of the population to go about their business as usual. Well, now, what you have said is if we could focus mm -hmm. the restrictions on those who may, might be most vulnerable, mm -hmm. could we? Is that possible? In this country, we've got people who live closely back together. We've got multi-generational households. We've got children coming home from school now in this second lockdown, maybe not the first one, but possibly bringing home the virus with them. We've got, if 
if the rest of us who are not vulnerable are allowed to go about our daily lives and go to work, the chances are we, we may be bringing home the virus. We may be asymptomatic and not know that we have it. Uh, and of course, there's always the risk of long COVID, which we've been hearing a lot about. So when you say, if we could focus those res restrictions, do you think that it is possible? Well, obviously I do, otherwise it would be very irresponsible to suggest that. Um, so I can break that down a little bit into what, what we think is possible. Um, but remember, first of all, you know, we're talking about what can we do in the face of the alternative, which is to lock down society and cause huge numbers of deaths. So it's not a, it's not a trade-off between locking down and protecting the vulnerable. I think protecting the vulnerable is something we have to do anyway. Uh, whether, and I think lockdown personally, I don't think it's an option at all, unless we are willing to accept a lot of extra deaths and a lot of distress otherwise. But how do we do that? How do we go about best protecting the, the, the vulnerable? Well, first of all, a large part of the deaths and the problem um, it resides within the care homes and hospitals. So if we can make those infection free, and there are very good reasons and very good models to follow there, that would take care of a large part of our problem. And of course it is in, in fact part, in a way it's nested within the uh, blanket lockdown strategy anyway. And then we come to the community transmission. Again, part, a, a large part of that is already nested in the lockdown rules. So grandparents at the moment are not able to see their grandchildren. And another crucial thing to remember here is that what the reason why focus protection work at all is because while the rest of the population are going about their business, they are building up natural immunity, which goes, we call the um, technical name for it is herd immunity, but somehow herd immunity has become um, aligned with this notion of letting it rip. So I'm going to <laughs> despite wanting to use it, I'm, I'm going to try not to. Um, so because naturally acquired immunity plays such an important role in controlling the risk of infection, um, what happens when you let the rest of the population become infected and immune, um, even though it doesn't have to be for, um, it doesn't have to be lifelong immunity, that's another misconception here. What happens is you eventually reach a stage as we've done with the other coronaviruses, and that would occur within a period of three months, typically, um, where the risks become low again for the, the vulnerable, and they can stop doing what they were doing. So we can, that bit of it where grandparents aren't seeing their grandchildren could have been over by now if we hadn't gone into an extreme state of lockdown uh, while the epidemic was spreading in April um, and May. Um, and then finally, of course, a very tricky problem of multi-generational households, by which we typically mean people who are disadvantaged. Now, what's sad is that our current measures are actually um, much worse for multi-generational households, in that many of the um, breadwinners in these households are having to come out and work anyway, because they're deemed essential workers, they cannot afford, they can't do what I'm doing right now. They can't sit in front of a computer screen or and, and uh, conduct their business without any 
risk loss of income or risk of losing their jobs. So they're out there and, and getting exposed even though they're vulnerable. So that's already happening, which is shameful. Um, and then, so what we need to do, of course, is what we would do if we would do a focusing protection is actually to say to those very people that no, we're gonna create the conditions for you not to have to go out and be exposed to that extent. And furthermore, that we would put in place um, perhaps measures of evacuation measures, not unheard of. I mean, people sort of seem to be uh, horrified when you suggest that, but actually for a period of three months during an emergency, uh, like a war, you would, you ha we have evacuated the vulnerable and you could do that over a period of time. Uh, furthermore, um, in a, and also testing uh, is another part of our toolkit that will help us protect the vulnerable. And now, fortunately, vaccines always, I've had a hope that vaccines will come on board, which again will play a critical role in protecting the vulnerable. So yes, it can be done. And while we're waiting for a vaccine, that is what we should do. Um, can I just ask you about the naturally acquired immunity? What kind of level of immunity are we talking about? How likely is it that uh, we could acquire a, a level at which we would therefore uh, be able to, uh, you used the phrase kick the can, but I, I don't mean that, that we could uh, ride this out, I suppose, until the vaccines come along. Well, it's not about riding it out until the vaccines come along. Naturally acquired immunity is always going to be the main way that we control the risk from coronavirus. That is how we live with all the other four coronaviruses that are circulating right now. It is how we live with influenza, which is a much more problematic uh, virus in that it has kills not only elderly people, but um, across the board has a high death rate um, in an endemic situation. The endemic coronaviruses, meaning those that which have settled down to a point where we have a sufficient amount of immunity um, don't, as you know, have such a high death toll because we don't hear about them. That's why we don't know anything, know about them. But there is no reason to believe that this coronavirus is any different from those coronaviruses. We have plenty of studies, some of which are done in our lab, that show that you make very good, robust responses to the coronavirus. In, and there are various arms of it. There are, uh, antibody mediated responses, their T cell responses. Um, you know, we have a whole arsenal of responses against these viruses. Uh, what there has been that people who are keen to discredit us use um, such observations as the antibody levels decaying quickly with time, which means absolutely nothing. That does not mean you lose your immunity. Uh, it also is the case that even if you have antibodies, doesn't mean you have immunity. So that link is spurious. And, uh, and we do know now that the six months from when they were infected, people have very good, strong responses. Furthermore, sorry, I keep using that one. <laughs> um, previous exposure to other corona, seasonal coronaviruses gives you the um, immunity, or at least there are immune responses that cross-react as it were and cross-protect. So we're in a pretty good situation actually with regards to immunity. 
The other issue, whether we have immunity at all, the other, but then the other issue is how long does it last? And it's not likely to be lifelong, like measles. Because again, going by the other coronaviruses, which seems to be a sensible, reasonable thing to do, um, you would say that you get reinfected every three or four years, but without symptoms. And this is the case for a whole a bunch of diseases with which we live. So that's where we should be heading. The vaccine will help nonetheless protect those who are vulnerable, even in these circumstances. And actually, this is the only way we can protect those for whom a vaccine might not work. Many of these vaccines don't work in the elderly because their immune systems are compromised through age. They have what we call immune senescence. So the only way they would be protected is if we have a level of naturally acquired immunity in the population. This can happen, does happen, and at the rate at which we lose immunity um, or lose antibodies is, is not an issue here. It's a very complex picture, obviously, and uh, I think we've all become fireside epidemiologists who perhaps think we know more about this than we do. Obviously, from our point of view, we are really worried about small businesses and self-employed people. As we said at the beginning uh, of the podcast, hundreds of thousands of self-employed people are giving up the dream of working for themselves because they can't carry on financially. That's the concern that we've got that uh, you know we will see more people leaving self-employment, more small businesses going uh, under. But there are lots of other concerns around the long-term impacts, and you mentioned some of those. But what do you see the long-term impact being if we carry on down the intermittent long lockdown route or restrictions route, the fire breaks and so on? Well, I'm not an economist, but it seems to me that they would be devastating. Um, I think that the life and blood of an economy must be the, the, the smaller businesses, the smaller enterprises. And um, there has been, you know, in the last 20 years of focus away from them. I mean, because even in academia, the sort of smaller grant that enables the innovation and the creativity um, the space for that has shrunk in favor of the sort of bigger consortium type um, grants. So I think this, uh, and you know, I'm also an author and in the literary world of literary fiction, again, there was particularly 20 years ago, there was this big movement towards that one kind of model, which these lockdowns will favor, which is the highly resilient kind of big market one, you know, big commodity, big market, uh, high margins model, which um, I think it just is just inimical to uh, innovation, and uh, and also is terrible for the consumer because it restricts their choices enormously. So I think that that's a that's a real tragedy. I mean, apart from the personal tragedy of having set up your own business and then watching it just dissolve in front of your eyes, taking that risk to be self-employed. I mean, these are all amazing risks that people take. And I mean, my heart absolutely goes out to them and has done from the beginning, which is why I'm here talking to you. And we are worried about mental health impacts. We are worried about uh, increasing suicide rates and whether or not there are any connections between those and the way that the virus has been handled. But there are newspaper stories around that are saying, um, 
and I'm not quite sure that this is phrased properly, but that are saying the lockdowns themselves contribute to spikes in the number of cases because of the way we react to the fact that lockdowns are coming into the system. So for instance, before the 5th of November lockdown, people went out the night before, had a good time, uh, said goodbye to their friends, etc. And then there are spikes around the country around about five days later. Can we actually argue that lockdowns cause those spikes or is that human behavior? I, I think that, the, you know, statistically, I don't think you can argue anything, but I also think that all of this is symptomatic of the um, complete irrationality surrounding this whole process of locking down, locking, going in and out of lockdown. It's not a sustainable strategy. It's not, it's a reactive strategy. And, um, and there's very little evidence that it's working properly. So I think if we had a much more sensible, sustainable strategy of focused protection, um, such that people could maintain a, a kind of a kind of plan for what to do and how to do it, plan also their own levels of exposure and think more carefully and compassionately about what they were doing, then they wouldn't rush out into the streets and say, oh my God, this is our last night of freedom, let's just go crazy. So, you know, in terms of management of society, I think this whole idea of bringing in arbitrary rules um, and going suddenly rushing into lockdown on the basis of some very spurious um, projections of what might happen, and also generally the, the, the fact that the conversation does not include the economic impact and the huge mental health impact and the aesthetic impact of lockdown, uh, I think it's, it's just, um, it's, it's disastrous. It's completely tragic. And I think from our point of view, we want the small businesses, the self-employed, that economic impact to be part of the discussion. Um, but if we- set up, Sorry, just to say, we've set up a website um, to document um, the, the collateral damage globally caused by lockdowns. Uh, not because we want, not with a political motive, but really more as something that should be part of the discussion. So and we I want think, to make sure that's there, yeah. archived properly, curated properly, and there to inform discussions about mitigation strategies now and in, in the, into the future. So let me just bring in a few other elements very quickly of the, the discussion. You know, how effective is distancing, masks? hand washing, how important is the R rate and what about track and trace? I mean, these are all the elements that we've got used to hearing about, but do we know how effective any of these are? Well, uh, I don't think we do uh, at all. I, I don't, uh, you know, there are lots of studies with, uh, it, the information is very, very sparse and we, we couldn't possibly say whether masks work. I mean, you know, Sweden managed without masks and other places, you wear masks. I would say, though, that you know, social distancing and mask wearing is something that you might want to do at a personal level. I mean, if you are vulnerable, that might be uh, quite sensible. And it's important to separate what happens at an individual level from a community mandate. So, you know, if you're going to see your grandma, I would certainly, um, you know, wear a mask, it, uh, and also definitely during the, while the epidemic is at its peak. I think hand washing, I think, is something we should carry on doing, frankly. 
Um, but social distancing, what when infection levels are high, uh, and particularly for those who are vulnerable, so rather than being completely isolated, uh, people who are maybe, you know, a 75-year-old person in reasonable health might just say, well, I'm not going to self-isolate. I'm seeing and see my grandchildren, but in the garden. So I think we can make sensible individual decisions based on our sort of understanding of sure what social distancing and masks might do. But to have a complete community-wide mandate seems based without any proper evidence seems a bit um, extreme to me. Uh, so that's one. What, what else? Were you um, I was I was uh, I was just thinking, of course, that uh, in health settings. So, for instance, in the NHS, obviously, proper uh, equipment is very, very important and uh, masks sure. are part of that. Uh, but also I was wondering about um, the uh, track and trace system and whether or not that can be effectively used in the wider population. Uh, or again, is that something that really needs to be focused around about health professionals? I think that needs to be used around, again, in the protecting the vulnerable. So focusing protection, I think, obviously testing can be a very useful tool in that regard. To try and try, test and then trace and isolate, I think is, um, it just doesn't work and it's hugely disruptive. So we've sent the kids back to school, we've got university students, but you know, every, you know, it's, every time I speak to someone who has a school child or a university student, they're half the time they're in quarantine because of this um, idea that you can stamp it out in this way. And I think it's misguided. I'm interested in what you said about the website. Uh, Simon mentioned earlier a new COVID recovery group of MPs who want a full cost benefit analysis of the restrictions on a regional basis. Um, is that, would that be helpful? Yes, of course. Yes. I think that's not happened. I mean, it's, to me, it's quite shocking that that wasn't that didn't happen right at the outset. In March, why did we not, why were we thinking along a single axis, which is how to prevent deaths from COVID? I'm not saying a lockdown mightn't have been a sensible thing to do at that point. Um, sure, it might well have been. And, but we needed to think immediately about how long can we afford this? What is this going to do? How are we going to protect those who are vulnerable to the effects of lockdown, you know? Vulnerability is something we live with every day, all the time. So, you know, if we're going to protect the vulnerable, we have to broaden our acceptance of what that word means. And somebody who's just started their business and has only just got to the point where they're saying, yes, this is a guru, um, is vulnerable. I... Um know that I've taken up quite a lot of your time, but let me just put it like this. Scientists want evidence. You have called for patience. Businesses want speed. <laughs> Where should we go from here? How, you know, how, how patient do we have to be for how much longer and how do we get through that? I think we should immediately abandon lockdowns. We should do everything we can to pick up the pieces, particularly, of course, um, for the economically vulnerable, I mean, it, it, within the economic sector, um, for those who are economically vulnerable, we should try and put them back 
on their feet immediately. We should focus protection on those who are vulnerable to death from COVID, um, not forgetting that there are a lot of people out there who are vulnerable to death from cancer, vulnerable to death, suicide. Um, and these are things, as I said, we are cataloging now so that we can't turn our face away from these problems. Professor Gupta, thank you very much indeed. I have with me our Director of Public Affairs and our business editor. So that's uh, Simon McVicker and Declan Curry. I just want to ask Simon and Declan, anything that you would like to ask that you feel that I have missed? Well, uh, from my point of view, uh, I find uh, Professor uh, Gupta's uh, testimony there very compelling. And I think um, uh, there's a growing number of MPs in Parliament who would agree with you. Um, I was interested you mentioned that uh, we're, all live, we're already living, I think you said, with four other COVIDs. Uh, and um, uh, is that something like the common colds, uh, et cetera? And is there, are we vaccine, vaccine uh, is there vaccines for these COVIDs or are we just living with them? And in the end, they don't become to the large percentage of the population, a threat to their lives. Um, that's right, we have no vaccines for the other four coronaviruses. And what happens is that we get exposed to these as an infected by them early on in life. So by the time a child is aged five, they will have had um, all four of these viruses. Um, there are a few deaths in infants as there always are with these respiratory infections. They're rare, but it happens. Um, we haven't seen any fortunately for for this one, probably because those infections actually confer immunity. And that's why the, the youngsters have such good immunity because they've recently had these other coronaviruses. What happens then is unlike uh, measles, we do lose our immunity over a period of time and we get reinfected. So we live our lives being continuously reinfected by these viruses, most often asymptomatically, sometimes with a bit of a cold or a sore throat. And then we get old and we lose our ability to, to fend them off. And so there are deaths in the elderly from these coronaviruses. So that's the sort of basic picture yes, where right. I think we should be headed with this one as well. And, 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 and has the whole range of other yes. respiratory viruses too. And generally these, these COVIDs are not as dangerous as, as say a flu would be, a bad flu. That's correct. Mm. Okay, that's thank correct. you. And Declan? Uh, Professor, um, thank you so much for your time today. It's um, uh, it's uh, we're grateful to you for uh, being part of our discussion. I, I find it helps sometimes to go back to uh, sort of basic principles on this. Do we agree that this is a life-threatening condition? Which is a life-threatening condition? That coronavirus is a life-threatening condition. It is to some people who are vulnerable, it is. but and that, and that there is no natural immunity present in society of any significant nature? No, I do not agree with that at all. I, then, I think that's something that has been used um, in all the models that have been made. And I think that is mis uh, misguided, incorrect, because if you look, if you consider the, the time courses of infection, um, what fits it best is a significant contribution of naturally acquired immunity. And that is what fits the biology best as well. Two 
important groups of scientific knowledge on this, SAGE, which advises the government, and then independent SAGE, which is headed by the government's former chief scientific advisor, both say that the levels of immunity in the population stands at 8%. I and think that, And that immunity diminishes so sharply over time that any suggestion of herd immunity from letting the virus spread is dangerous, unscientific nonsense. I think they're wrong, and I would like to invite them to have a public debate with me on this matter, which they have all avoided. Well, um, I, I so see. If I they're see. wrong, I can show they're wrong. I can send, I can, um, you know, uh, run a simple mathematical model. I can post those results uh, I already have um, in various um, so, so, uh, essays and, and manuscripts. They, they're simply wrong, it's not true. The rate of loss of immunity does not impact on the development of herd immunity. I don't think anyone in SAGE is saying that because they would be contradicting what they said themselves in March. Um, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, statements of members of SAGE online as I'm speaking to you. It's not exactly uh, a group of people who are avoiding the public limelight. The point I'm getting to the point is, is I, this. They are the, wrong, the, I the, think. Okay. <laughs> They, and I would like to debate it. There, there uh, is indeed, no reason to believe immunity but, decays. There is no reason to believe that we will not reach the same accommodation with it as I just discussed with Declan, as we do with the other coronavirus. Sure, but this is not a dry academic debate. The consequences of this are lethal. And the point is that this is something exactly. that is, that why is debating this with me. Uh, this is something that is spread by social contact in the air on surfaces. We don't know who's got it because so many people are not displaying symptoms and yet are spreading it. And that is why we have lockdowns. That's why we treat this differently from the cold and from the flu. Why would we treat that different? Nothing you've described to me is different to the flu or the cold. Because if you've got the flu, you know you've got it. You've got the symptoms. Yeah, you yeah, could yeah. be walking around. <laughs> you could be walking around with coronavirus yes, in a bus queue, on the tube, in a coffee stall, spreading it without yes. knowledge. You, you, okay, Declan, I'm going to cut you, you off there. How do you think people, 30,000 people die of flu or might die of flu in a year? Where do you think they got it from? They also got it from yeah, asymptomatic yeah. people wandering around giving it to them. Yes. So this is not unusual. There's nothing unusual about this situation, except there are a lot of, to start with in March, obviously, or earlier on, a lot of people had never encountered this virus before. And so what we needed to do was protect those who might die of this and allow the rest to build up immunity so that we could reach the same level of uh, you know accommodation that we do with other coronaviruses. Um, thank you, Professor Gupta. I am going to stop it there <laughs> because, as you can see, the debate will rage on. Yes. Uh, and what we would really like is to be able for you to talk to some of the sage scientists, perhaps on this podcast, <laughs> because we would like to hear that discussion. Refusing <laughs> to engage with me on this. Uh, uh, yes, so uh, we shall, we'll put out the call. If anyone would like to engage in the discussion, then please do, do give us first uh, refusal at hosting that debate. It has been uh, really enlightening to talk to you. Yes. Thank you very, very much. Thank you indeed, very much. Uh, for taking the time to join us. And uh, 
we just wish that when we come out the other end, you would come back and talk to us about uh, where we go from there in order to uh, make sure this never happens again. I just wish good luck to everyone who is listening. Absolutely. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. Now, that's been a brilliant conversation. Simon uh, and Declan, uh, can you please stop beating each other up? <laughs> well, let's have a, a think about what Professor uh, Gupta has said to us there. Mickey, you were listening avidly. What did you think of what the professor said? Um, well, I could see what she was saying. I wouldn't agree with much of it. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I'd like to see, she talked about a focused lockdown. Well, how are you going to do it? How are you going to achieve it? I want facts. I want uh, how are you going to do it rather than some sort of magic wand being waved and everything will be all right tomorrow. Um, and, you know, going back to the 90s when drug companies were developing their own drugs in those days, which they don't do anymore, um, I used to go through all those trials with the big drugs, phase one, phase two, phase three, because they were closely, intensely linked to stock market performance. And, you know, if you had a, a drug that was being tested and they would match it with a placebo. And if it's, they got to phase three and all of a sudden they realized the placebos were about as effective as the new drug, share prices used to plunge. And the cost of developing these drugs just went through the roof. So these days, the big drug companies get the smaller ones to develop these things and then latch onto them, um, develop the thing and maybe actually bid for it. it it's changed completely. And we always have to remember there is no cure for a virus. You can only suppress it. So the likelihood is one drug, and I'm not an expert, and I don't fully understand, but I was always taught one drug is not enough. You need a cocktail of them from all around the world, from all different drug companies, and offer them to the public. You will then have something that suppresses it effectively. If you have just the one drug, the likelihood is a lot more people are going to escape through that, and you know they will be affected by the, the COVID-19 pandemic in the long run. And I think that they are saying that there are lots of vaccines about to come on stream. Yeah, and that's good. But let's on. see them first. Let's not, you know, I'm keeping my fingers crossed and I'm not trying to pour cold water over it, but I'm trying to be practical. We, we really have got to see these things come through. And yes, there is light at the end of the tunnel now with this new one. But let's not find ourselves disappointed in a few weeks time or a few months time because it hasn't worked out. That, that's, you know, a lot of people have gone through a lot. They don't want to be let down. What I took away from what she said really was that we're going to have to learn to live with this. It's not just yes, going to disappear. Yes. The vaccine itself is going to take a long time to roll out. Um, and in the meantime, we're going to have to be patient because we don't really know enough of all the facts that we need to know yet. And is this a drug that is, a... you know, is this a disease, a, a virus that's going to mutate at some point? But they're all talking about mink in Denmark. But if it mutates, then we've got a whole series of new problems. And we need well, new drugs for that. We live with flu, but we don't have a crystal ball. You can't plan what next year's flu is going to be and arrange a drug. It doesn't work that way. We have to live with it. I think Declan was about to do his mink impersonation again. Yeah. If you didn't, uh, if you didn't join us last week, Declan Edward, did a wonderful yes. impersonation it's of a mink last week. One of the best impersonations week. of a mink I've ever seen. <laughs> it's not exactly a competitive field, that is. <laughs> <laughs> Any any thoughts, Declan, Simon, any thoughts? Their small businesses want to get back to work. And actually, look, I don't I don't feel that it's going to be a short look. 
let's be re- realistic about this. Um, uh, what she's saying is is making is common sense. Uh, she's saying lockdowns don't work; they're too blunt an instrument. Um, we haven't succeeded in the last ten months in getting rid of this thing. We've just pushed it down the road a bit. Um, you know, we're living with other COVIDs in our society, which we built up immunity to. And uh, as Mickey correctly says, you cannot vaccinate against these COVIDs, really, because uh, they just don't work in the long term. So we have to build up a, a sort of immunity within the community. And um, we are, unfortunately, some people are going to die in the short term until this is going to happen. But if we keep locking down the economy, we are going to cause untold damage to people's health and well-being in other ways. And I'm afraid, I don't care what SAGE and alternative SAGE say, we've got to get some realism into this debate. I think this is where the Conservative MPs are coming from in the COVID recovery group. And I don't believe they will vote for another lockdown. So it'll be up to the Labour Party then to decide what they're going to do. And how do you feel about that, Declan? Because I know you take a slightly different view. Yeah, th- this thing spreads through social contact and the longer it spreads, the faster it spreads. It accelerates away. It's an exponential increase. And if you want to see a damaged economy, just imagine what you see if we let this thing rip. And we But that's have... not what the professor is suggesting. It's not. To be fair, she is she not be, suge- no. Well, she is not suggesting we let it rip. She's been quite clear on that. She, she said does that. not think we she should said, let it rip. She said that, but then she was incredibly vague in the detail of how this focus protection will work. And as you rightly pointed out, Liz, we have multi generational households, many of them, uh, in this country. We have older people and younger people and middle-aged people all interacting and engaging with each other every day. There's no mechanism that's been explained on how you separate those out. And the idea that COVID is something that just kills the old. First of all, where did we ever get the idea that we can let the old die and not worry about it? Secondly, it does kill the young. And it does injure the young and very it does few. cause very, not, not very, very few, Simon, uh, not very, very few. few. And, and we also have long term health damages. And if you want to see a damaged economy, try building economic strength on the back of a population that is permanently weakened by this disease. So how it's long not, do, you, but, do you want to lock down the economy for a deadly? When on, can we open the economy again? We can open it when we have a better handle on who has this and who has to be isolated. And that can only be done when we have the type of testing system in this country that they've already got in places like South Korea, where they've got a proper handle on this. This is a failure of government and a failure of testing. Okay, we are at that point where I usually say we've got to wind this up now. These two are going to carry on arguing in the background. On and on and on. And on and on and on. I have to say, I'm really worried about the long COVID thing. I'm worried about people with uh, mental health problems, uh, mental well-being problems, as a result of uh, being locked down, being isolated, um, losing family members. So just made it's, me more grumpier. Just, just the whole, <laughs> the whole thing is. Uh, let's get that vaccine out there as quickly as possible, as many of them as possible. But it will take a long time to roll out, and and I think the message is quite clear. 
we still have quite a while to wait. And in the meantime, we'll be back next week. <laughs> Thank you very much to the Professor uh, Declan, Simon, Mickey. It's been great as always. Um, more, more conversation around about small business and the issues they face, they face next week. If you want to contribute, if you want to join in, just let us know. We are on LinkedIn or Twitter at business underscore backend or email us at contact us at backendbusiness.org.uk. Bye for now.